Lord, we ask and invite you to speak to us this morning, that you would speak to us graciously, um, that you would speak to what is going on in our hearts this morning, where we are, what this past week has been, because your word is alive and breathing. And Lord, you know the needs that we have coming to you this morning, and we ask that, Lord, you would remind us of your faithfulness. You would remind us of how close you are, how near you are to us in the midst of all the challenges that we face. And Lord, you would guide my words, that whatever I would say this morning would not be things that Chris thought of saying, but Lord, they would be your words. I offer them to you, that you, by your spirit, would make them and use them towards your purposes, that you would bring glory, be brought glory through all this. So may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be holy and pleasing to you, Lord. Amen. As a start to Mark 4, I wanted to go back to storms. Some of you might know that we're starting a new series this morning. It's a new series called God in the Storm. And it's because there are some incredible storms in Scripture that I want us to look at over the next few weeks and reflect on what is God doing in these storms that might help us understand how we live life and understand what is taking place in our world today. And my first step to do that is, was to research what are some big storms that have happened in Alberta that I don't know about, <laughs> because then in truth, I don't. The one that stands out that was very easy to find was a storm that happened in 1987. Some of, which, some of you would be familiar with that. Not everyone here, I don't expect. So I will try to explain what happened. But in 1987, as a CBC article reports, the weather reached biblical proportions. That's a quote. Torrential rain started happening, rivers rising, severe hailstorms. It was a Friday, three o'clock in the afternoon, when all of a sudden a black funnel touched ground. A cloud touched, and it roared like a freight train. Any of the reports you hear from this event, you hear, they talk about how loud it was, a loud storm, very windy. And it swept northward through, the, through downtown Edmonton, tearing the city apart. And if you listen to these interviews, because I listened to a few this past week, you immediately experience just people feeling really rattled, people being really thrown off and shocked by this happening in Edmonton. And some of the statistics about this storm were very devastating. You know, people referred to this as one of the deadliest storms in Canadians, his, Canada's history. It was an F4 twister. Unfortunately, 27 people were killed, 15 of which were part of a mobile park community on the northeast side of Edmonton. 600 injured, 1,700 people were left homeless, and the damage from the storm was close to 300 million. It was significant. It was devastating. And I don't know if, can I just see a show of hands at least here with us? How many of you remember that storm that were with us? I see a lot of hands in the building. I would not be one of the hands raised because I don't have a memory of it. So if you have a memory of that storm, go with me here. What do you remember from that storm? And if you don't, go to the biggest storm you can remember, whether you were out camping or at home, something that disrupted what was planned, something that disrupted what was happening. Go to this storm, whether it's in 1987 or more recently, and think, what was happening here? Why did I feel the way I feel? Something was so disrupted. And you end up finding that you have specific stories Things of how maybe families bunkered together downstairs or maybe just didn't bunker at all and I'm out in the street just wanting to see the, the incredible storm. Or maybe you personally felt devastation from these storms. 
Or maybe you knew of someone who was personally devastated. And I, I think about these storms because they bring about a state of emergency immediately. A state of emergency that really, in some ways, is devastating, but also offers clarity about what's actually important, about what actually matters. And so I think about these experiences of the storm, whether it's going back to 1987, and I think about where we are today. Our world, so disrupted, raging with division and intensifying concerns and disagreement, us experiencing significant challenges with being isolated from one another, and the devastation goes on and on and on. And we all have our story. We all have our stories from part of this experience. They, if they tell us, they say a lot about what we use to try to cling to hope in the midst of this time. What were successes and what worked for us and also what didn't work. How we found ourselves needing hope and help in the midst of this time. I hope that we can speak to this experience and allow God to speak to us through this experience, through this series, because what God does through these kind of storms, whether it's an actual physical storm or it's an analogy about a storm, says everything about who he is. It says everything about what his purposes are in the midst of these disrupting times. They involve physical threat, and they also involve spiritual opposition, But when we cling and see God in the midst of them, we see what God's doing. So as we dive into Mark 4, as I explain how to understand and catch up where we are in the gospel story, I would hope and just ask that you keep these questions in mind. I'm looking for nods that you will keep these questions in mind, but don't forget them. The questions are, who is God in this storm? Who is God in the storm? And what does he reveal about himself in this storm? Who is God and what does he reveal about himself? There are three different versions of this story throughout the Gospels. I'm focusing on the one in Mark 4, but you can go to Luke and Matthew to find the others. And one of the interesting things about Mark is how it sets up the whole book. You can go to the very first verse. If you just flip back a page and if you have your Bible open, you'll see this. The very first verse is basically says the purpose of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. God. The goal and purpose of the gospel of Mark is to help us to see and behold Jesus and the good news about Jesus as the Messiah, as God's son. And it's, it's, and so everything that happens from the narrative beyond that point is to service that goal, to help us see who Jesus is and to come back to it over and over again, see it in different ways, see it in different angles and actually reflect on how it actually impacts us. And how we live our lives differently in light of Jesus coming as the good news, as the one promised Messiah who is the Son of God. It demonstrates for us through this whole gospel, as we'll reflect on in this storm, that Jesus is the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of life, who reigns over all the natural elements in the world, but also declares victory over any sort of opposition that would come against him. The very first beginning of the chapter, now I'm at the beginning of Mark 4, if you can flip your Bible, Mark 4, 1, will tell you what was going on at the beginning of this chapter before this massive storm came upon Jesus and the disciples. It says this, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. So he was by water teaching at the lake and a crowd gathered around him so large that he had to get into a boat so he wouldn't have been overwhelmed by the people. And he sat in 
in, in it, out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore on the water's edge. So he was teaching. And you can look through what he was teaching about if you just glance at the titles. And it's actually a lot of farming analogies, which I think of the farmers, farming families in our, in our community. The fact is, it's a lot of faithfulness, like faithfulness to God through this understanding of how you relate to creation. Faithfulness to God through how you relate to creation. If I can speed up a little bit to go to where the storm begins, it's described for us what's happening. I'm going to read from verse 35. That day, when the evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. Who is God and what is he revealing about himself in this storm? Well, as you already heard from Dan reading, a furious squall is what the, what the translation tells us. A squall, a hurricane, very windy storm immediately came about. And if you want, also it's important to remember that the Sea of Galilee, well, remember or no, is right next to a bunch of large mountains. So similar to here, we get strong winds sweeping off the mountain ranges. Similar to the Sea of Galilee, wind comes strong and forcefully. And even though what, what the passage wants us to know is that the disciples were thrown off by how fast this came about. Well, in Alberta, we know how quickly wind can come, how quickly it comes and goes. Really, they probably should know better too, how quickly the wind came out of nowhere. And what, the way they describe the, the storm is with such intensity that the waters started to break over the boat, swamping it. It was taking on water, which would eventually take down the boat also describing in some way, the way it describes it is almost supernatural. This is an extreme force of a storm. That's the way they want us to receive it. And this picture of Jesus sleeping with the disciples, all, you know, with a storm raging, has captured the minds and hearts of believers throughout history. You can look at different pieces of art that have been created through the time. I have a few examples to show here of just what this might have looked like for people who were reflecting, wow, this is incredible. Um, there's another picture just to show this is a Rembrandt, I believe, of just what it looks like to be caught up vulnerable completely to this storm. In 1986, um, People actually found an example of, uh, of a boat that might have been what Jesus had been on. You know, it's, it's similar in design. You only see part of it in this picture, but it's actually carbon dated back to the first century. And if you go to the next picture, this is a possible recreation of it. Um, but essentially, like, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a large boat. It is a small boat. Now, it's with other boats, so we don't know. Maybe the disciples are in a, a, a selection of boats, and Jesus is just in one of them. We're not really clear what the function of the other boats are, right? But nonetheless, this is how they are. This is where they find themselves. And I think to myself, if I was in this boat in the middle of a pretty large sea, how vulnerable I would feel if a large storm just took place. I couldn't get to shore in time how exposed I would feel. And it draws me into how I experience this story that Mark tells us, and it's very personal. The story really almost describes someone who was there. The Gospel of Mark, I don't know if you're aware of this or heard this before, oftentimes it's credited to the first-hand witness of Peter. That Peter was there, that Peter worked with Mark to the telling of the Gospel story, and that Peter... Um, 
is essentially, he, he, he's basically sharing his firsthand experience is why it has a lot of these details, the hour of the day, the fact that there are other boats. The boats are taking on water. It's swamped. It's one detail. There's a cushion. This is the thing that I always like dwell by. Why is Jesus sleeping on a cushion? Why is there a cushion? Is the cushion a mandatory part of the boat? I don't know. Um, but there is a cushion nonetheless. It tells you all these details. Now, I want to ask you a few questions that will get us to the bigger questions. How do Jesus' followers respond? And I actually want some participation here. If you could tell me, when you read this story, how do Jesus' followers respond? Anyone? I'm waiting. Fear. I hear fear. Anything else? Panic. Panic was the word I, I definitely reflected on this week. Any other words? Fear. Panic. Sorry? Doubt. Fear. Panic, doubt. Those basically take over the ship. <laughs> that takes over the hearts of the people. Jesus is sleeping, if you remember at this point. Jesus was in the stern sleeping. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They are completely panicked, completely vulnerable, of course, understandably vulnerable, but panicked, and they lose sight of this purpose that Jesus has come for. Why has he come? They lose sight of that. The problem in this story is not the waves. It's not the wind. It's not the water. Though those are understandably scary things. We can die from those things. Jesus understood that they didn't have a wave problem. They really more have a trust issue. That Jesus understands that they don't trust him. Yes, that in this storm, there are these unseen forces happening, whether it is the actual storm, which you can see, or whether it is the spiritual opposition that's taking place in Jesus' ministry, or it's the spiritual battle waging war in the hearts of Jesus' followers. Jesus sees those things, but he also knows how much they don't understand who he is. He also knows that they don't trust him with their lives yet. And I think myself and my experience over the past year and a half, how many times I've wanted to go to the Lord and just say, Lord, don't you care that I'm drowning? Don't you care that I can't breathe or that this boat is going under? And at the same time, God wants to say the same things to me. Chris, I don't think you quite understand who I am. Chris, I don't think you quite understand. I don't think you quite trust me all the way. He's inviting us to trust him more. Second participation question. How does Jesus respond? We talked about how the followers respond. How does Jesus respond? Anyone? I hear confidence. Calmly. Calmly. Confidence. Calmly. We read in Mark 4.39, He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. I love that. And then the wind died down and he was completely calm. Jesus responds calmly and confidently in himself. And he rebukes the storm. He rebukes the storm. Rebuke, it's a word you see in Mark repeatedly. And oftentimes it's not used about how Jesus speaks about nature. He actually does it in reference to evil spirits a lot, actually. He rebukes the impure spirit of the first man who comes to him in Mark chapter 1. He rebukes uh, Peter when Peter is concerned about human things and not about what God is doing. And he rebukes a, sp a spirit of, that was possessing a boy in Mark 9 that was causing the boy to be deaf and mute. 
he rebukes these spirits and he says, quiet, be still, shh. And he brings calm. It's the kind of calm that only God can bring. He had a conversation with the sky and he announced his judgment over it immediately. And it's not a special incantation, but like you all said, confidence and calmly, he speaks a simple word which is based upon his authority. The simple authority, authoritative word of Jesus. And it's the same kind of word that God speaks over creation in Genesis. That out of, you know, that is all, there's complete chaos and instead God brings order through a simple word. So Jesus rebukes the storm calmly and confidently. Jesus also rebukes his followers. He rebukes them and he says to them this. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And it's good to remember that Jesus has already been teaching. He's already been performing miracles. He's already giving all the signs and cues that this is who I am. This is who you've waited for. And at the same time, they, in this moment of panic, forget who he is. They forget, have you no faith? And it doesn't feel good to rebuke, especially when you know in your heart (laughs) that you're wrong, because we like to have our lives figured out. We like to have things figured out, our, our lives, our profession, our faith, our family. But the storms in life don't always allow us that pleasure, nor does God. They reveal sometimes painfully what is and what isn't. Jesus, in his own way in this moment, is saying, you didn't trust me. I was with you the whole time, and yet you panicked. Was there any doubt that I would come to rescue and save? After the great storm comes the great calm from the authoritative word of Jesus. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let me ask you a different question. How do you see Christ in this passage? Going back to what did we see God doing? How do we see Christ in this passage? Who is he? What is he doing? Well, the key thing that Mark is doing over and over again through lots of scenarios and just different circumstances is in the storm, Jesus does what only God can do. In the storm, Jesus does what only God can do. And you can begin to apply in how you understand the world right now. That Jesus is doing what only God can do. That God alone has the power to calm storms. For Jesus to have this power, he's demonstrating himself as God to the people who are bearing witness to what he's doing. But this isn't just about nature or creation. It's about the opposition, the forces that would come against the world, the darkness that's in the world, then the sin that's rising up in our lives. But no, Jesus combats that too with complete sovereignty. You know, a lot of people, a lot of commentators, they look at this event in Mark 4 and they think that the sea is this manifestation of death. That death is rising up and Jesus in victory is contending against these evil forces through teachings of faithfulness and mastery over creation. So when he arrives on the other side of the sea, if you look at the rest of chapter 5, they meet a man named Legion, a demon possessed, waiting for an encounter with Jesus, who upon Christ's word is set free. The Syrophoenician woman who's suffered her whole life from a disease that no one could cure, she's healed. From Jairus' daughter who dies from sickness as they're trying to bring Jesus to her, 
she's brought back to life. Where Jesus speaks to her and says, little girl, I say to you, get up. That the words of Jesus speak far more authority over creation and mastery and against any opposition that would come against his plans and us. Whenever, this is the next point. The first point is that Jesus does what only God can do. And the next point I want to mention is that whenever you read, you're just reading the story of the gospel, whenever you reflect on the person and work of Jesus, it also highlights discipleship. It also highlights whenever it looks like to follow God with your life, that when you see Jesus, you see what he's doing, you see what he's revealing himself to be, it also highlights what you're doing, how you are living, what your faith looks like. There is a mirror that takes place. And the disciples, yes, it's the beginning of the gospel. It doesn't really transform over the course of things leading up to Good Friday and Easter. But it focuses on the fact that they are blind to what's happening. That they are blind to what's happening. They don't understand who Jesus is, even if they are learning on the journey. And the key focus in this storm is faith. Is faith, discipleship, faith. Even when followers lack faith, Christ remains faithful to them. You know, I think about when Mark was receiving, when, when early Christians were receiving this gospel, and you think about the early church in Rome who was just getting persecuted for their faith. When being a Christian was, people would hunt you down for your faith. And I think about us who maybe we don't experience the Christian faith in the same way, but we've experienced so many challenges to our faith. Things that we're trying to figure out how to go deeper and learn from past experiences. And then we have a global pandemic. <laughs> we have a global pandemic and then we get isolated from each other. And fear at the end points us and reminds us that God is near in the midst of whatever you're experiencing. That God is close. Yes, Mark tells us that he's sleeping. It's the only time Jesus tells us that, uh, that the gospels tell us that Jesus is sleeping. But he is present and close. And that Jesus being in the boat with you, whatever life looks like for you, is meant to be a powerful invitation to put your complete trust with God. That he has mastery over the storm that is taking shape in ways that none of us ever thought. But at the same time, God is completely in control of the storm. And he's completely present and in control of your life. So like the massive story that took over Edmonton in 1987, or any other storm your mind went to, and my mind goes to several, where you feel bunkered down, the question you have to ask yourself is, what is the story that's happening in this moment? Is this me trusting that God does what he says he will do and does trust me? And I trust God is what I mean to say. Is that what's happening? Because what happens, this passage reveals the problems, which is that we react to all the wrong things. We react to the symptoms and not the core issues. It's less about storms raging because storms come and go. The true concern is how we relate to Jesus. Is walking with Jesus how you face storms? When you face challenge, do you invest more time in spending time with the Lord? Or do you just try to find a different way out of it? Would you prefer to deal with the problems your own way apart from God, apart from Christ? Or would you want to meet them with them? The problem is not the storm. The problem is not the pandemic. It's how, who, 
we have aligned our lives with and what we treat as important. What we treat as most important and what guides our lives, who we walk and step with, that is what matters much more than anything else. The comfort of this passage that God does what he says he will do. He does bring calm. You're going to think about how our life looks right now. It'll look different two years from now. But some of the same dynamics will still be in place. Who do you walk and step with? And how do you go about that? Do you put your complete trust in God? Or are you committed to finding your own ways and your own solutions? Good luck with that. I'm going to invite the band to come up as they lead us in a response and worship. But what I want you to leave with is this sense that Jesus is in the boat with you. That a storm is raging on and we see in scripture that Jesus completely and easily calms. And God will bring calm to this mess we find out in life. But part of it is understanding more and more about who he is. Have we invested time into learning more about who God is in this time? How do we give our trust to him? Psalm 107 takes us on that journey of thinking about our stories. The first verse says this, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. For me, I want to know your story. I want to know what you've learned about God and where he's walked to you. Because the psalm basically talks about people going through different challenges. And one of the ones in verse 23 as he picks up is that some went out in the sea in ships. Some went out in the sea in ships. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. And then lastly, and this is where I feel like we find ourselves, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves to a sea. I'm going to stop there. I would invite you, because we have several songs of response, whether you're sitting or standing, to cry out to the Lord. We worship with our hearts, our bodies, and our minds. And it speaks to the fact that we are in need of help and direction and care. How do you need to cry out to the Lord? You need to cry out to him in distress, to cry out to him because he hears you always. If you feel challenged, what does it look like to offer these challenges to God? Trusting in Jesus. Do you want to put your complete trust in God? In what areas of your life are you not doing that? If you're tired, can you go to the Lord for rest? And then when you don't feel it, do you pray for it over and over and over again? And go back to it the next day. Even when you don't feel the rest, do you keep praying for it, trusting that God is the source of the peace you are seeking? Do you give thanks to the Lord for the good things in this season? Because there have some for all of us, even if it's been filled with hard ones. And do we ask for mercy and help for the troubles that still linger? Do we proclaim that Jesus is the God incarnate of the storm? That he is the Lord of the wind and the waves and that he is the one who truly brings calm because he offers us his calming presence. Please pray with me. I ask that, Lord, you would guide everyone in how to respond to this morning and this message and testimony in Mark 4. The storm that rages in the Sea of Galilee is also a storm that we meet in our lives. And part of how we deal and respond to that storm is not that different, that, Lord, we want to see you and behold you. We want to put our trust and faith in you. And, Lord, we ask for help. 
that this storm is scary and we are not able to beat it. So Lord, please comfort us and give us your strength. Help us to step into honesty and love with one another, to stand in unity with each other as a community who knows who Jesus is and walks with him. Lord, please do not let us put these things aside. But give us courage to face them head on. Because you are doing what you said you do and you're drawing us close to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.